we landed and took the patient into the hospital. I went back out the next day and the pilot said, Brendan, remember last night? I said, yeah. They hit the kangaroo. He said, we flew it back. The engines held on by three bolts. And when the engineers had a proper look, he said two of them bolts had sheared. So the engine was only being held on by one bolt. And I thought, my God. It's the center north section of the child, but it's one of the four fifty eight thing here. Still breathing okay Hi, name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast series about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Wiradjuri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. What's it like to work for the Royal Flying Doctor Service and be flying in and out of some of Australia's remotest locations? We continue to receive some great questions through the Flying Doctor podcast hotline 02-8405-7928 and some questions have come through regarding our flight nurses. So this episode we'll be talking to Brendan Devlin, a flight nurse who has worked for the RFDS for more than 30 years. Brendan has a cheeky smile a devilish sense of humour and the most caring nature. If he can't answer your questions, then I don't know who will. As a note, this episode does include descriptions of injuries that some may find disturbing. Hello, Brendan. Morning, Lana. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. You're based in South Australia and have been on our team for a long time. You started nursing in 1984, almost four decades ago. What led you to choose nursing as a career? It, It was by accident. Totally the truth. And I wasn't always a nurse. Um, I started my career working in a quarry in a, in the UK, as you probably guessed by my accent. I'm not from Australia. I started uh, working for British Steel Corporation, which is a major steel producer in the, in the UK. And I worked in their iron ore mines. So I was a trainee manager and I did that for five years. And that involved Lots of things with blasting and driving dozers and all through everything to do with mining. It was a trainee program, traineeship. So uh, I started that. I finished that, in fact, in Doncaster. And I've got a, I'm a member of the Institute of Quarrying. <laughs> that was a long time ago. But uh, I finished that training. But and then, unfortunately, British Steel Corporation, they, uh, they closed down. So I was made redundant. I was I did a few jobs after that, and I was going out with a nurse at the time, and she said to me, why don't you try nursing? So I thought, well, well I'll give it a go. And I was a mature age entrant then. I was 21. Surprise, surprise, I passed. So it just led into me being a nurse. So I started my training, and it was a hospital training-based program back then, and I started in a town called Peterborough in the UK. And I finished that, as you said, I finished that training in '84. And then I moved to Birmingham, big city, and I worked in a big city hospital for a couple of years. I was a bit unhappy about living in the UK. I was engaged and then I got disengaged. So I thought to myself, where can I go? And I thought, well, Australia seems a good option. It will take me away from 
any problems I had in the UK. So I applied for a, to emigrate to the UK. And uh, that's how I ended up in Australia. Back then, it was you, you had two country postings to go to, to go to Australia. And the first posting, I landed in Perth, green as. They said, I've got two country postings. And I said, well, okay, I'll, that's fine. The first country posting was Kalgoorlie. So I got on the train in Perth, and I was waiting an hour and two hours. I thought, how far is this town called Kalgoorlie? Well, six hours later, I get off the train, and then there I am in the outback town of Kalgoorlie. So I spent six months in Kalgoorlie, and then I went another country posting, which was up to Derby, and that was another eye-opener. That is such – there's such a – a difference between working in a quarry to working in an English hospital to suddenly being in Kalgoorlie and then Derby as a country nurse. Was there a culture shock? Absolutely. I just couldn't believe myself when I got to Kalgoorlie. I thought, where am I? What have I done? Brendan, go back to the UK because you're never going to make it here. It, you know, Kalgoorlie was all spitting. You, you go into a bar there and it was sawdust on the ground and there was miners fighting. I thought, oh my God, didn't get this in the UK. <laughs> but uh, the work was interesting. The work was interesting in Kalgoorlie. It was different. And then certainly when I went up to Derby, I considered that the real outback. That's when I first came across the Aboriginals. And uh, that, that, was, that was a change and that was interesting. That was um, a steep learning curve for me. But I survived the first first year and then I got um, citizenship after that. So how did you then come to work for the Royal Flying Doctor Service? I met my wife up in Derby. I got married back in 88 and uh, then we moved down to a town, Carnarvon in WA. My wife kept on pushing me. She said, um, Brendan, why don't you go and do, do your midwifery? And my wife's German by birth. I kept on putting it off, putting it off, and then I thought, well, it's easier to go and do my midwifery than to have to put up with my German wife telling me, go and do your <laughs> I mean, you might not understand it, but the men out there will understand what, exactly what I'm saying. So I thought it's easier to go and do my midwifery. So I went and did my midwifery in um, Sydney and I came back to Kalgoorlie as a trained midwife. I trained and I hated midwifery. I thought it was the worst thing I'd ever done. It was, I, I just felt so out of place. When I was doing my midwifery, I had to get minimum of 20 deliveries, I think, at the time. And six months into my training, all the girls there were getting, oh, how many have you got? And they were, well, I've got 22, 23, and I've got 19. And, well, how many have you got, Brendan? I said, four. <laughs> and this was halfway <laughs> through my training. And it was because every time I'd go to one of them, um, they'd say, I'm not having him in here. Or the, the, the husband would say, He's not coming in here to deliver my, my wife. So I struggled, but eventually I, I, I finished my training and I got, I think it was 22 deliveries and everyone else had 45. But, I, you know, I passed. <laughs> and so then I went to Kalgoorlie. I went to Kalgoorlie and consolidated my midwifery, which was really good because I actually enjoyed it. <laughs> I got quite good at it in the end, doing this birthing thing. And then in Kalgoorlie, the RFDS was there and they needed a flight nurse uh, part-time, so I applied for the job there. And that's that's where I started, was Kalgoorlie doing a part-time flight nurse job and working in the hospital at the same time. And it was only through me having my midwifery that I, I got that job. 
that makes sense because midwifery is, is a skill that you have to have as a flight nurse for the RFDS. Are you involved in both primary healthcare clinics and also emergency retrievals in your job today? Uh, not currently, but I used to be because I worked up in Alice Springs and I, I ran a ran a clinic out in a place called Tars Bluff, which is ooh, about 240 kilometres west of Alice Springs. We used to do a clinic there every um Every Thursday, so we'd fly out there. It was fly in, fly out, and you spend all day doing the clinic there. But yeah, I used to be, I used to enjoy that. That was that was different. Again, you learn on the job how to cope with the situations that come in in a clinic rather than a, a retrieval situation. Now, what do you love about nursing, Brendan? Like, how does it fill your cup, so to speak? I love the job. I love the challenges. I love meeting people. Uh, I love talking to people and problem solving. And, difficult for people out there outside nursing to understand that you see things and they think like oh you're the expert but sometimes you're bumbling along thinking well I don't know half as much as you know about this but you get through things it's a change and it's it's the challenges and it's the people and it's everything. Well I know that no day is the same but what are the basic roles and responsibilities that you have as a flight nurse currently? We're on call a lot of the time We've got so busy now, we're, we're, we're at the base mostly every day. And so you'll get a call. Our comms, comm centre, which is in Port Augusta, will ring you for a job. And the job, you go to the hangar, the job comes in, it's, it's all in a printout, and you ring the hospital, assess the job that you've got to do. And it, and it, may, be, it may be Port Lincoln and someone's got a, a broken leg and they're in hospital, but you've still got to ring that hospital, find out that they've still got the right medication, They've still got um, anti-nausea tablets on board because we can't, it still gets a little bit rough up there. And if they've got fluids running, and you just do a primary little survey of them and, and get the correct odds before you go out and pick them up. That's mainly what we do, but there's lots of the little mundane jobs you always do. It's checking equipment, making making sure the equipment's up to date, and you know ongoing training as well, ongoing study, because you're always learning. There's always new things to learn in, um, in nursing. You just were mentioning there into hospital transfers where you have a regional hospital where a patient has to be transferred to a metro hospital. Do you also go out to remote areas to recover people off dirt roads or wherever they have run into trouble? Yeah, well, um, our base in Port Augusta mostly does that because they're um, they do the primary evacuations from, like you said, stations or and side, sides of roads, they do that. But uh, up in Alice Springs, we used to do that a lot. Here in Adelaide, we've got the um, Aeromedical Retrieval Service, which is a statewide service. And if we have any um, accidents out bush that Port Augusta don't, don't handle, we'll go with them. And that consists of a, a doctor with them. And they've also got their own retrieval nurse, and we go along as well to help them out. For instance, if someone is ventilated in... Mount Gambia, which is uh, 500 kilometres from Adelaide. It's about an hour by plane. We as flight nurses can't go down and pick them up. South Australian Retrieval Service will come with us. We'll go down and pick them up. They put them on the ventilator. We put the ventilator into the aircraft, take them back to Adelaide, and then they take them back to the primary hospital. Most country hospitals can't look after um, ventilated patients. In fact, all of Australia now, the country hospitals, that they don't do ventilation. They can do it for a short period of time, but they, uh, mm. for long periods of ventilation and treatment, they don't. And, of course, they don't have the specialists 
down there that they need as well. Now, I want to ask you, would you help us walk in your shoes or fly in your plane for a moment? What is the most memorable emergency retrieval that you've been involved in and who was there and what happened? I remember once when I first started, this was in Alice Springs. It's sad and it, it, it sticks sticks in my memory for always. I don't know why, it just is there. But uh, we were in Alice Springs and we got called out to this rollover, which happened on the Lassiter Highway, which is the highway to Ayers Rock, as we used to call it back then. And it's, it was pretty sparse there. And we flew down to the local airstrip. I think it might have been at Curtin Springs we landed. And we had to travel by you out to where the accident was. And the car, it was a rollover, and there were three occupants in the car, and one of them was deceased. The other girl in the back, she'd had a, a serious fracture of her leg, a mid-fracture of the femur. But, she, I mean, she was breathing, she was, she was conscious. And the driver of the, of the car, she was relatively unscathed, but these were Japanese tourists, and they couldn't speak any English. And we flew out there, we picked them up, we loaded them up into a, a small ambulance that they had from the community there, and uh, we took them to the aircraft. And it was the husband and wife, they were in the back seat, and the sister was driving the car. And she obviously got out of trouble on a bit of the dirt road, never driven on a dirt road before, got in to the side and flipped the vehicle. But the husband and the wife, they'd only just married four days beforehand. This was their honeymoon. And they, they were in the back seat, but they weren't restrained either. They didn't have a, they didn't have a seat belt in. So I can't imagine what they went through. But yeah, the wife, she didn't know that the husband had died. She kept on asking the husband to the sister and the sister could speak a little bit of English and sister was asking me, should I tell her? I said, don't tell her at the moment. I mean, she's too sick. So we took them back to Alice Springs and I followed up on the case and it turned out that the wife was actually pregnant as well. She was three, three months pregnant and she lost the baby. And I just thought to myself then, I thought, here they are, these lovely couple, young, they were only 25 or whatever, having a great time. They've flown over to Australia to have their honeymoon. And there they go. Now she has got to go back to Japan and bury her husband. It just tugged at my heartstrings, that story. And I just felt really sad for her, going back to a funeral. Yeah. And it's just how quickly, Lana, life can change. Yeah, life can change. It can, can't it? Thank you for sharing that. As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback, and Isuzu have provided D-Max Utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes, minus the wings, and the Isuzu D-Max and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state, and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. tell you Lana there was another there was another story that it, it was tragic again it was in Alice Springs and it was in a town Armata which is on the um, 
South Australian border, I think it's about 40 k's south of the Northern Territory border, and we got a phone call in the middle of the night to say that there's been a dog bite down in Armada. It was an Aboriginal community. We took the doctor with us. We thought, well, I don't know what's going on here, but it must have been a, a bad dog bite. So we flew down and we, we, we got picked up by the Aboriginal health worker and then they, they told us the story that um, the old lady, because it was, it was a dark and it was a cold wintry night, probably something like now in July, and she was sleeping by the campfire. And she, she, like, she was in her 70s. She was sleeping by the campfire and, the, and the, the dogs were around, the camp dogs. And one of the dogs bit her on the leg. So she went and kicked the, the dog. Well, the dog came back grabbed her leg, and there was another pack of dogs there, and they attacked the woman on, in the campfire. And that was the story as we got as we drove into Armada. Oh. She was attacked by about six dogs. And I, I can understand what happens. That They are pack animals, and once one of them started on that, and she would have been screaming, the rest just joined in. Well, we got to the clinic, and I mean, I don't want to be too graphic, but there was blood everywhere on the floor, and we, we, we just looked at the woman. She, her ear was bitten off, didn't have an ear. The dogs had bitten her head and had punctured one of her eyes. They, were, oh. they attacked her in the head because she was wrapped up in a blanket. And then they attacked her arms, they attacked her legs, they bit her everywhere. I mean, she didn't survive. We got there, we couldn't really do nothing. She had massive blood loss. They de-scalped her, they, they dragged some of her scalp off and took that off. It, it, was, it was shocking for me. And I just couldn't, I just thought, what is this? It's, it's, it was these animals just attacked this woman. That's just chilling. It's just chilling, isn't it? It's like something out of a horror movie. It, it, it was something out of a horror movie. You just couldn't comprehend it. And then we didn't take her back. We left her at the community because um, she was she was deceased and we thought we'd, we'd leave her there and let the um, relatives do the grieving as, as they do. But, but then we called the rangers and the rangers came in the next day and they got rid of the dogs. They, you know, I think they shot the dogs in the end that were around the camp. That was a shocking one for me. And it was a shocking for the doctor. We, we just flew back to Alice Springs, didn't say a word. Just we were, we were both in shock at what we'd yeah. seen. But yeah, that's, you know, that, that's extreme, but that's sometimes what you have to cope with. Right. Well, to counter that slightly, I was I was going to ask you for the most scary retrieval you've been involved in, but I'm worried now. <laughs> I mean, it's scary ones. Well, I really haven't had many scary ones. I remember one when it first started. This was years ago. This was in Kalgoorlie, and when I when I was working in the hospital then, and as I said, doing the the part time, we flew out about a twenty minute flight to pick someone up. It wasn't far. It was it, it wasn't far at all. And it was in a Conquest. They had the Conquest aircraft. They're a turbo, turbo prop aircraft. And we flew out. And as we were landing, we hit a kangaroo. <laughs> and this kangaroo jumped across the runway and bang. What, what, what was that? Oh, and the pilot said, oh, we just hit a kangaroo. He says, it'll be all right, Brendan. Huh? The pilot got out. He rang the engineers and he got the light out. Because it was the middle of the night again, as usual, when the kangaroos are out. And the engineer said, can you check everything? And he took the cowling off the aircraft and he checked all the, all the inside of the, the engine mounts and whatever. He, he looked at them and, oh, yeah, they're okay, yeah. So the engineer said, look, we'll, f- we'll fly it back to um, Kalgoorlie. And it was only a 20-minute flight. So we, we did fly back to Kalgoorlie. And it was fine. Nothing, nothing happened. And uh, we landed and we took the patient into the hospital. And then I went back out the next day. 
I had to go on another job. And the pilot said, he says, Brendan, remember last night? I said, yeah. I hit the kangaroo. He said, we flew it back. I got a bit of ribbing from the engineers. I said, why is that? He says, well, the engine's held on by three bolts. It's a Garrett engine that's held on to the aircraft. It's held on by three bolts. And when the engineers had a proper look, he said two of them bolts had sheared. So the engine was only being held on by one bolt. And I thought, my God. I mean, I wouldn't be here if the other bolt had gone. I mean... When was this, Brendan? What year was this? This was some time ago, right? This would have been back in probably 1990. Right. I'm so happy that we have really strict maintenance protocols. <laughs> By rights, the engineers should have come out, but they didn't happen for some reason. I don't know. The engineers should have driven out and, and stopped the aircraft flying, but if that doesn't happen now. We're more safety conscious now, but it was in the... It was in the Wild West, I suppose, in Kalgoorlie. I think that's interesting, actually, Brendan, because we have such a long history. So we're just turned 94 as a service. And with that, you have many lessons learned. And so I can only imagine that that story has led to protocols that in the last 30 years are so strict because because every single time there's a near miss, we can adjust and, and fine-tune and tweak so that we get better and better and safer and safer and so forth. But could you imagine if you were flying and the engine fell out of the plane? <laughs> it was funny at the time, and but it was scary at the same time, yeah. Yeah. But yes, yeah. You're right, that would never happen today. There's there's so many checks and balances in place. that, And it, as soon as a, a pilot reports a problem with the aircraft, the engineers are onto it straight away. And the yeah. aircraft we have these days, because they're, they're fantastic. They, you know, the Pilatus that we fly, they're, uh, they're, a, they're a fantastic aircraft. Yeah, they are. They are really something else. They're great. Now, we have a, a question from a caller, and the question is... Hi, Lana. This is Zoe from Adelaide. I'd like to know what it's like to deliver medical care to someone in a plane. Um, I mean, what sort of equipment um, do they have available? Thanks so much. Inside, basically, it's a tin can with a couple of wings on it, and it's not very uh, spacious at all. It, we, we have two stretchers in the plane most, most of the time, and you are probably only maybe two foot away from the patient because you've got a, a seat that sits next to the stretcher, and it's usually the stretch, you sit on the right-hand side of the patient. So you can actually reach out and just touch the patient and they're on the stretcher. It's noisy in the plane. It's it can be turbulent in the plane. People get sick in the plane because of the because of the turbulence. It's a confined working environment. So you've got to have all your eggs in one laid out exactly as you know where things are, just in case something goes wrong. And to work in that environment, you've got to plan ahead. There's nothing worse than going in an aircraft and you haven't planned ahead and something happens. God forbid to that patient that is unexpected. You've all you've always got to have the equipment ready. You've got always got to be thinking ahead. What drugs will I need if this happens? Because usually you're the sole person on the plane. You've got the pilot and you've got you as as the nurse. That happens ninety percent of the time of our flights. It's a, it's a nurse only. And in terms of equipment, does that mean that you have? Um... Uh, if somebody goes into cardiac arrest, as an example, I presume you have a defibrillator. What sort of equipment do you have there? Yeah, we have a, an all-in-one. Um, it's called a Zoll. It's a defibrillator, and you can. It's got the defib pads. It 
it's got everything. It's got the monitor. It does your blood pressure. It does your oxygen level in your blood. That's that's the primary piece of equipment that we use. And secondary, we've got our drug box, which we use, and that's got all our drugs in, and it's all the main line, like, for instance, cardiac drugs that you, you might need. They're at hand. They're readily available, and if you plan your flight correctly, you, you'll be able to access them. But uh, you've got your oxygen supply in the plane, so the mainstay of treatment is is keeping them people on oxygen and keeping their airway patent. But uh, yeah, we've got mo- mostly the equipment that you'd have in a in a small ICU. We've got in the plane that keeps patients alive. We can pace people with the machine. The, te- the technology these days, Lana, you would not believe that is kept in a little small box that you stick on the on the wall and you can do everything. That's fabulous. We also have another question from a listener. Hi there, this is Tina from Brisbane. One of my kids would eventually like to work for the Royal Flying Doctor Service as a nurse and I wondered if you could tell me what training is required and what experience would they need to be able to work as a flight nurse? Thank you. Yeah, to work as a flight nurse... Uh, uh, that's changing um, gradually, and um, it used to be that you'd um, you needed experience in A and E or ICU. You needed you usually you'd, you'd need about three or four years post experience. You can't be a new graduate coming into the flying doctors. You need to know a little bit of how how you work as an individual before you go into the flying doctors. But uh, you need your midwifery as well, so that's an extra qualification that is getting more and more difficult to to get. For instance, when I trained, it, you'd uh, do the midwifery, and I trained in doing my midwifery in Cogra, and that took a year. Well, now the midwifery is, is a whole degree, so you spend three years doing your midwifery. Besides that, you've got to be a, an RN as well. Well, there's another three years, so it takes a long time to be a midwife and an RN these days. So what the RFDS is doing, certainly here in Adelaide, is we're having midwives and non-midwives as um, flight nurses and the non-midwives as flight nurses have got experience and have worked in ICU or worked in A&E or got a certificate in that but uh, midwifery is, is, is a qualification that's getting harder to seek. All right well every job has its light-hearted aspects and you've given us some really good dark sides so could you give me some insight into funny things that have happened to you while you're on the job? Uh, yeah, yeah, there's a few little stories. I've got more than one, I think, Lana. <laughs> this is when we moved down to Adelaide and uh, we got called out. It was during the day and we got called out to uh, a job and it was in Lamaru. And Lamaru is south of Adelaide, uh, maybe a 40-minute flight. It's near Pinaru. And Lamaru is an airstrip that we very, very seldom used back then. This was back in 96, 97. Back then we had uh, we had Navajo aircraft. They're a they're a piston aircraft, and they're a fantastic aircraft too. They're a, a good all rounder. They don't break down. They they can take the hard knocks. They land on short strips. They land on rough strips. So me and the pilot Rocket, we call him Rocket. We used to call him Rocket Rod because he'd go and do anything, anywhere, anytime. So we fly out, me and Rod. We land on the strip and. It, a little bit rough, boom, 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 and we land there. And we were waiting for the ambulance. And we, oh, the ambulance isn't here. And Rod was just minding his time. And he seen the farmer over over in the corner. He says, Brendan, I'm going to go and have a word with the farmer because I think the council needs to upgrade this strip a bit. I'll go and have a little chat to him. 
I said, yeah, go on then, Rod, yeah, the ambulance isn't here. So Rod runs up, walks across and has a little word with the farmer. And uh, in the meantime, I ring our comms, uh, which is in Port Augusta, and I ring them and I says, look, we're, we're waiting for the ambulance. It has there been delays? And they call back and they say, well, no, the ambulance is waiting at the strip. And I went, well, I don't think it is. But anyway, Rod comes back and I said, what did the farmer say, Rod? And he said, uh, this isn't the airstrip. This is his paddock. The strip is the next paddock. <laughs> so, so we all sheepishly, Rod got in the aircraft, took off and did a big circuit. And then it was sure, sure enough, we saw the um, ambulance on this other strip. So we landed on the strip. But back then, it wasn't that there wasn't GPS like we had these days. And you'd go by um, visual, you'd see roads, you'd see rivers, you'd see mountains. So we flew back to back to Adelaide, and Rod got a bit of it in the trouble for that. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what the farmer said when he came over and he said, this, this strip really needs some work, and the farmer would go, I don't know what you're talking about. Why are you here? <laughs> <laughs> this isn't the airstrip. The airstrip's in the next minute. <laughs> well, That's a great story. I like that. One day we, we got a call, and we got this call. We got a red mark. And routine call that we said we'll pop off to Renmark. We got we, back then we had pages and it was a little page you read that you had on the side of your belt and it was just a text message. So we read, we read that and we thought right off we got to Renmark. So and I call up like I said but I call up Port Augusta, which is our, which is our base there. So I said I'll BNZ, which is Port Augusta. This is Foxtrot, picked up Foxtrot, departed Adelaide. We got. Two on board, and we're arriving at Renmark at 10 o'clock. And uh, thought no more of it. And Port Augusta called back and said, Foxtrot, Victor Foxtrot, uh, can you repeat how many POB? POB is passengers on board. Yeah. I said, two POB. And there was a bit of silence then. And, and I thought, well, that's weird. They were asking me that. So then they ring back and they said, uh, haven't you got a patient on board? I says, no, no, we're going to pick up a patient. She says, what about the patient in Adelaide? And then I looked at the page and it was take one patient out, take one patient up. And the pilot, Steve, he, he cottoned on at the same time. And I, he said, oh, what have we done? We've, we've left the patient behind. And then he had to call traffic control and he, he made up some story. He said, oh, look, we've got a technical problem with the aircraft. We've got to return to Adelaide. We couldn't say that we've forgotten the patient in Adelaide, so we've got to go back and get them. So we had to fly back to Adelaide. And I would have it, it was on a Saturday morning and there was there was no management around. So everyone had a little bit of a joke about it, a bit of a laugh. It, it wasn't a problem, but the management did here, of course. It's like the classic, isn't it? Oops. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> we left the patient at the airport. <laughs> yeah, that, that was, we, we, laughed, we laughed about that. There's so many stories. There's another place. This, this, this happened in Alice Springs. We went, again, it was the Lassiter Highway. We went out to um, a rollover. It was halfway between Ayers Rock and I think Curtin Springs. And we got to the scene and it was close to an Aboriginal um, community there. So they've got their own ambulance. Got a, they used to have troop carriers. We call them troopies. And you're able to put a, a, a stretcher in and basic medical equipment. 
And these were two Aboriginal health workers. Well, what had happened is, of course, again at night, everything seems to happen at night. A couple of uh, people were driving along the highway and they hit a bullock. And uh, they ran into the bullock and they swerved off the road. And when we got there, they weren't seriously injured. I think one of the guys had a fractured clavicle and the other had a broken wrist. Not too serious. But we thought, well, we'll, we'll, we'll take them back to um, Alice Springs anyway. So uh, I go to the two Aboriginal health workers and I says, look, can we get a stretcher out from the troopie? And they had a couple of words with each other and then they looked at me and, and a bit of silence. And I said, no, we'll, we'll get the stretcher out of the troopie. Again, a bit of silence. I says, oh. I said, I'll go and get the stretcher out of the troopie. I thought, so I went up to the troop carrier, opened up the door and I looked and there's, there's something on the stretcher and it was covered over and I looked down on the bottom of the troop carrier, there was all this blood. So I, I pulled the sheet off the stretcher and there's the bullock. The bullock was on the stretcher. And I thought, oh, it was, it was, I mean, it couldn't say anything to them because it was funny. I mean, we're not going to miss an opportunity. A dead bullock on the road and they're going to take it back. So we said, all right, don't worry about the stretcher. You... So we put them in the, another vehicle that we had and, and took the patients to Alice Springs. But yeah, I thought that was funny. They'd obviously turned up. They'd looked and saw that people were walking around and thought, well, this bullock's on the road. Let's go back and get that. So they took the stretcher out, loaded the bullock onto the stretcher and put it back into the troopie. That was a funny story. I laughed about that. Oh, I love it. Oh, thank you so much for letting us walk in your shoes, Brendan. This has been a lovely chat. It's been really good. You've given some insight into the light and the dark of your role and we're so lucky to have people like you that work for us for so long. Just amazing. It, it, it's so rewarding, though, Lana, to, to work for the RFDS and it is a challenge and you've got to be a certain type of person that can cope with the trauma or the good times and the happy times. And it's not all doom and gloom and a lot of it's routine. It's not It's not all emergency work either. I mean, yeah. it's yeah, so, uh, no, it, it's a great job. It's a rewarding job. And it's a sad job at times. Um, yeah, there's ups and downs and you see a lot of tragedy in your life and it just, it just makes you wake up to, to the fact that things can change in a heartbeat. Just enjoy life. Get out there, enjoy life, and just be good and be kind to everyone. That's all that really matters. That's my philosophy anyway, Lana. I don't know. I concur 100%, Brennan. Now, I've got a question I'd like to ask you, Lana. Yeah, go ahead. Why is there no aspirin in the jungle? I don't know. Why is there no aspirin in the jungle? Well, it's because the parrots eat them all. That's a joke I always tell people. Yeah, they always call me an idiot, but I still tell the same joke. <laughs> oh, it's a perfect ending. Thanks, Brendan. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with family and friends. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join our new Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community, where you can chat to other listeners. And please do try out our new podcast hotline. You can call and leave an audio message with questions and feedback on the podcast. The number for the hotline is 02-8405-7928. We look forward to hearing from you. 
The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Cullen. Thanks again for listening. Hi, Lana. Look, my name's Zed. Uh, I live on Norfolk Island, and, uh, and I've been following some of your podcasts. And I must tell you that it just brings so much joy to me, the way that you guys help and how wonderful the, uh, the stories that you're telling. It reminds me so much of, uh, of my own life uh, on the farm. Keep up the good work and hooray to uh, the Royal Fine Doctor Service. Take care. Stay safe. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.